Well, well, good morning to you. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It is my privilege to bring to you God's Word. We're back in the series on the book of 1 John. This is the third message or the third section. We're going to project it overhead. Even better, if you have your Bibles, please open them and follow, uh, follow along. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. I'll read this for us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Do not love the world. Don't love the world. That's our passage today. What does that mean? Let me give a straightforward definition to begin with. To not love the world or... To not be worldly, I would submit to you, worldliness is a way of life. It's a way of life as if this present world is all there is. Do not love the world, in essence, means don't live as if this present life and this present world is all there is. Uh, The notion, hey... Go out there and make the most of your life. Make sure you maximize your life. Seize every day. That's not wrong in and of itself, but if it comes and flows from the worldview that you need to make the most out of your life right now because this life is all you get, that's actually the essence of worldliness. And Apostle John here in the Holy Scriptures commands us Don't be like that. Don't love the world like that. I've got three parts. Uh, What it's not, I've got to further distinguish, further define, because this is so confused. What John is not talking about when he says, do not love the world, what it's not, what it is, and then how to replace the love of the world. Three parts. What it's not, what it is, and then how to replace a love for this world. What it's not. The reason I got to spend a few moments on this is because today and throughout church history, including my college church, that was very directed and led, and its culture was going hard in one of these misunderstandings. There's all kinds of misunderstandings and misapplications. When we read a passage like this, do not love the world, misunderstanding number one, it means segregation. Do not love the world. A lot of people think and interpret and apply as well. Then we got to go run and hide. We should go up to the mountains. This is where monasticism has erupted. Uh, It is also called asceticism, being very harsh physically against your body or even the desires of your physical flesh. Segregation, segregation. Literally run and hide and escape from all of society because... This interpretation believes that when it says do not love the world, it means do not love anything and everything in the world. It comes to the notion that everything about this world is inherently evil and everything in it. 
All right, there are several issues against this kind of misinterpretation. First would be the same author, Apostle John, wrote the Gospel of John. And it might be the most famously quoted verse, John chapter 3, verse 16. It reads, For God so loved the world. Same author, same author. Right here it says, Do not love the world, but in John 3, 16 it says, For God so loved the world. I mean, go figure. So here it could not mean that you should not love everything about or everything in the world. Because back in John 3, 16, God so loved the world. We have to make sense of it. We have to make sense of it. Evidently, God loves the people of the world. God loves every human being in the world. God especially loves people who do not know him, who are lost, who are confused, who are trying to live lives apart from him. God so loved the world. Do not love the world could not mean everything in the world. A second issue I take against this misinterpretation of segregation is um, Jesus Christ himself did not stay removed and safe and comfortable away from this present world, but he entered right into our world. Jesus did not run and hide. Jesus did not fast and pray 24-7 up at a mountaintop. In fact, he told his disciples from a mountaintop, we got to go back down. We got work to do. Almost every religion kind of gags or chokes on this idea that God, you know, God could assume human nature, put on human flesh. A lot of philosophies and worldviews rank that spirituality or the invisible realm is somehow elevated more important than material matter. Not Christianity. Jesus Christ took on human flesh and entered into this world. People mistakenly think, well, God is so holy and God is so spiritual and God is so great and God is so infinite that he wouldn't dare to do with anything with human flesh or dust or get his hands dirty. No, no, no. Christianity counters it and comes back and says, no, 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 we actually think God is that great, that holy, that majestic, that powerful that he did do that. Do not love the world cannot mean segregation. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Second, God entered into this world. Third, last but not least, Jesus rose literally, physically, bodily from death. All right. There is no other religion you're ever going to find that pays more respect and value to your human body and your physicality than Christianity. Nothing's going to come close. Do you know why? Because we worship and follow Jesus Christ who was raised bodily, physically. The material universe matters. Your bodies will continue recreated into eternity. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. It could not mean run and hide, and segregate. Here's a second misunderstanding. Selectivity. Selectivity. 
What I mean by this is that everyone, if you're familiar with the Bible, you have a partial biased definition or image of worldliness means. All your defense mechanisms, if you will, or your spiritual defense mechanisms go off. Because all of us here want to feel better or more than someone else, and we ourselves want to feel less than, less than, less sinful or wicked than someone else. You see, selectivity is where you define worldliness, and you do not allow Apostle John to define worldliness. Uh, Put it in a different way, I'm sure everyone in this room has pet peeves, okay? Pet peeves is the thing that irritate or annoy you the most, or in spiritual terms, it's like the most disgusting, despicable sins. And here's what human beings just tend to do. You love to despise and look down on sins of other people, pet peeves, while we pet our own favorite sins. You see, selectivity is the human biased self-defense mechanism definition of well, worldliness, of course, means those people out there, but it could not mean me. See, as soon as I read this passage, if you've been around any religious circle, do not love the world, don't become worldly. Immediately, you have a certain list or like certain vices. You even have certain faces and names right now that came to mind. You're like, oh, someone in my small group or my neighbor or my cousin, oh, they're like this. They got to be here for the sermon. Do not love the world does not mean segregation, and it refuses for you to be selective. Please pay attention to Apostle John. And when you pay attention to Apostle John or the Holy Scriptures, do you know what the Holy Scriptures tend to do? Do you know what it tends to do if you really pay attention to the Bible? The Bible exposes us all, all of us, evens the level and levels the playing field, puts us all on the same plane. Do not love the world does not mean segregate. Do not love the world does not mean to be selective. So what is it? What is it? Verse 16, verse 16. Apostle John spells it out in three distinct categories. Here's his three descriptions, and they're all interlocking. Do not love the world. Love in the Greek is translated from epithumia. Epi, epi. Means to go overboard. Means loaded with intensity. It means to go over. Over. Do not overlove the world. And these three categories. So I'm going to better translate it from the English Standard Version as over desires of the flesh, over desires of the eye, and the pride of life. My friend, what is it? What does it mean to not love the world? Please pay attention to John. Here's what it means. First, over desires of the flesh. Over desires of the flesh. Other English translations of uh, the, the, the body, the physical body. Two examples. First, uh, food and drink. Great food and drink. Southern California. I mean, I could travel the whole world, but I always want to come back to Southern California. We enjoy and are prizing 
diversity and the glory and the taste buds, all the taste of just the food we have in Southern California. Is there anything wrong with good food and good drink? No, not at all. They're actually meant to be enjoyed if you're a Christian, and they're meant to be enjoyed to the glory of God, the creator and the giver. But as soon as you live to eat and drink, as soon as your life becomes all about being a foodie or a drinker, you see, you need food and drink to survive and to live, but if you live to eat and drink, it actually becomes harmful. And you can eat and drink yourself to disease and to death. You can enjoy and desire food and drink as good gifts of God, but when you epithumia, you see, you, ep, you go over, you just go over, extreme, you go overboard with it, and you live for food and drink, the food and drink actually starts to harm your life. Here's a second example. Rest and recreation. Rest and recreation. Weekends, three-day holiday weekends, spring breaks, summers, great, they're wonderful. Is there anything wrong with that? No. In fact, God commands it. You should rest and recreate. God patterned it like he's an example of it. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Worship me and actually rest and recreate. But as soon as this becomes an over-desire, where you live for rest and recreation, see, there are a lot of people who say, I just can't wait till Friday. I cannot wait until the weekend. I cannot wait until the three-day holiday weekend. I can't wait until that break. I just can't wait until I get away. Do you know that for a lot of people today that vacations and recreation become neurotic? It becomes addictive. And let me tell you, there's deeper issues to that. You're not just living for rest and recreation. It's because you really don't like your work. You don't like your work. And may I suggest to you, do you know why you don't like your work? Do you know why you don't like your real life work? It's because maybe you chose it in a worldly way. You chose it like everybody else does. You don't choose, choose it in a worldly serving way or worldly loving way or worldly sacrificing way. You chose it in a worldly way, not a godly way. And do you know what a worldly way it is to choose work? Do you know what the typical way it is to choose work? Whatever work gives you the most money or whatever work gives you the most status, you got to go work. And if you chose work that way, of course now, you see, there's a certain desperation that starts to settle in. Because you're so unhappy and unfulfilled with work, which you chose in a worldly way, now you become just like the rest of the world because you can't just wait, get, you just can't wait to get away from your work. But how many of you in this room, no matter how many rest and recreations you took, towards the tail end, do you really rest? Does it really fulfill you? Because at the end of your vacation, you think to yourself, oh, you just dread it. I got to go back to real life. I got to go back to work. You see, when there's an over-desire, there's an over-kind of obsession with, I live for rest and recreation, you actually don't get to really rest or recreate. My friends, do you know what's missing just in these first two examples? Apostle John says, do not love the world. First category means over desires of the flesh. What's missing in those first two examples with food and drink and rest and recreation? 
God is missing, right? Worldliness is living as if this world is all there is. It's a way of life without God, apart from God. And the trouble is, according to the scriptures, is the moment you try to live a life apart from God, even at your rest or recreation, you are busy dying. You know, Apostle John is saying, don't love this world because if you love the world, you're going to be busy dying. You're like escalating it. You're just speeding it up. You're dying faster. The over-desires of the flesh. Your second category. Over-desires of the eyes. Do not love. Do not over-desire what comes to your eyes. This has to do with, obviously, appearances. Beauty. Fashion. Materialism. How you dress. Images. Impressions. Impressions. This whole world is about just instant impressions, isn't it? Just what kind of feeling did you get from that person for like five seconds? Or measuring status and worth upon possessions, titles, pedigrees, and money. Again, all of that can be good. It's given as good from God, but when it becomes an over-desire, it comes back as a curse. It comes back as a curse. My friends, everyone in this room, you know when this happens. You know when this happens. Like if you have the question, hey, pastor, like, can you please spell out for me? You're saying that it's good, but if you over-desire it, it's bad. How do I know when I'm crossing the line? Here it is. All right, here it is. You know that you've crossed over into a love of the world or worldliness because worldliness will always make you uptight. Worldliness will make you afraid and upset. Worldliness will leave you terribly insecure. It's going to drive you into neuroticism and addiction like no other. Do you know why? A love for this world or worldliness by definition is you got to get what you got to get because this is all you're going to get. See, how could it not lead into addiction? If this life in this present world is all that there is, you better get as much of it as you can. But you're going to be unhappy because you're constantly going to obsess, obsess over how much more you can get. Here's Christian people. Here's Christian people. You know, Christian people come along and what they get is a whole new set of eyes. They don't over-desire this world with their natural set of eyes. Christian people get a whole new set of eyes. They see things differently. They process things differently. They interpret things differently. They get x-ray vision. It's like superhero powers. Yeah, it is true. When you become a Christian, you see things differently. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, Apostle Paul says, we don't judge things like we used to. Christian people can admire beauty. Christian people can admire and applaud fashion shows. We appreciate that, but do you know what Christian people do? They look at that, they also look underneath the surface. Christian people have a whole new set of eyes. We're no longer so naive. We're no longer so simple to please, actually. We're no longer just impressed by 
first impressions or appearances. Here's how a Christian person handles food and drink and vacations and recreations and beauty and status and material possessions, houses and cars and status in this whole present world. Here's how Christian people look at it. We look at it with a set of eyes from out of this world. And Christian people have this whole like mechanism going on that's a little bit different. It's alien. It's alien. We start to ask, well, you know, what's going to happen in about 100 years from now? Let's stress that further. What's going to happen from about 10,000 years from now? What's going to happen 10 million years from now? Christian people have a whole new set of eyes that look at a long-term point of view. They look at an eternal point of view rather than a temporal point of view. Verse 17, Apostle John says, this whole world is passing away, but the will of God and the one who does the will of God abides. How long? Forever. Christian people just have a new set of x-ray vision where we say, well, uh, I want to see and I want to prioritize and value the eternal more than the temporal. You see, so when it's good, when it's good, you get good food and drink, you get good rest and recreation, your work is satisfying, you get some awards, you get some applause, people respect you, people like you. I happen to think, do you know Christian people should be happier and more grateful than any other people on the planet? Because Christian people have a whole new set of eyes. You see, you get to enjoy that good thing here and now in 2019. And on top of that, Christian people know, whatever I get to enjoy here and now, I'm going to enjoy the ultimate and the greater and the more fulfilling thing in perfection in an eternal tomorrow. So I think Christian people actually should be twice as happy and twice as grateful. Christian people have a whole new set of eyes. We know that what I enjoy in this temporal world is just a setup for how much better it's going to be in eternity. I get to enjoy that thing twice. It doubles the gratitude not only to created things here, but to the creator and to the future. See, in other words, God has dropped so many trailers. God has given so many signposts. In the church, we have two sacraments. Two sacraments is baptism and communion. Communion, which we're going to celebrate today. But there's so many other what you might call signposts and trailers, you know, trailers, like previews to a movie. And Christian people are watching that preview in that trailer, and we're just getting so excited. We're getting so amped up. We just can't wait to see the whole thing. You can thank God for the trailer, and Christian people are saying, I know I'm going to get to see the whole thing. At the same time, when you don't get it, when you don't get great food or drink, when you don't get restoration, when, you don't go, when you're not applauded or awarded or recognized for your work, when you may not be the most attractive or famous person around, do you know what Christian people can do with that? You don't think that's the end of the world for you? No. You don't think that your life has come to an end? Come on. 
because you missed the trailer to that movie, is your life over? I mean, if you're devastated and you lose your life because you missed the trailer, but you know that you're going to end up watching the great full, full movie, you lose your life over that? No, Christian people should never be devastated over that. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to take a risk here. <laughs> Before I ever had sex, I thought, Sex would be the greatest thing that could ever happen in my life. And then I had it in marriage. It's not. <laughs> this is being recorded, right? Okay, sorry. So, Oh, it's so not. That's my fault, not my wife's fault. <laughs> and as I get older and older and older, it continues to demote and go down in the rankings of things I might be most satisfied and pleased by in life. It's not. It's not the greatest thing. You could go without sex. Let me put it in a different way. If God made sex and God created sex, he must be that much better. He must be that much better. And I'll tell you, if Sunny were honest, well, Sunny is honest, she'll tell you. Yeah, it's Harold's fault. But uh, Sunny and I will both tell you, there is nothing even in our marriage. All it is, it's a tease, it's a trailer to what our souls and our hearts long for most. Over desires of the eyes. Here's an undisputed test for worldliness right here, right now. Here's what will measure what you really believe about this world and the afterworld. Do you know how you can tell? Where does the majority of your body and your eyes and your money and your possessions go? It's that simple. Where do you put the majority of your body, your energy, your time and talents and treasures and possessions? Where does it go? Where does it go? Does it just go to how you look right now? That's passing away. Does it just go to what the world can award you and how much they can pay you? That's all passing away. Or does it go to, according to what Apostle John says, the one who does the will of God abides forever? The will of God. Do you know what the will of God is? Do you know what's eternal? Do you know that thing which will not rot or corrupt into eternity? The word of God, getting the word of God out there. Lost friends and people that we love coming to Jesus. People's souls and the church and the kingdom of Jesus Christ growing. Do not love the world. Do not love the world. Don't over-desire things of the flesh or the physical body. Don't over-desire things that tantalize and captivate your eyes. All the glitter. Christian people are anti-glitter. They really are. They can see underneath everything and see its underbelly too. Here's third. The pride of life. The pride of life. You know what these ancient authors, it's very crucial for you and I to understand that there's a... Uh, 
There's an order to this, the threefold description of do not love the world. And I will call it, it's a descending order. Like he goes from, this is bad, this is worse, and here's the worst. There's over-desires of the flesh, there's over-desires of the eyes, and then let me just get to like the rank, stank bottom. To really be just like the world, to be in love with the world, means that you are full of pride. This is the worst. And it is sad to admit that... um, Let me just talk to people, even youth here right now. You grew up in a church. You grew up in a church. You're actually a little bit more in danger, and you got to think harder. Let me say that again. If you grew up in church, you're in greater danger, and you got to think harder. Okay? Here's what I mean by you got to think harder. In a lot of churches, we will emphasize and demonize unfairly sins or loves that come from category one and two. Oh, look at that drunk person. Look at my drug-addicted classmate at school. Look at the drug dealers. Look at the gangsters. Look at those immoral people, people who didn't stay faithful to their husbands or wives. Look at those materialistic people out there who overspend. They're so pompous. And the church, especially if you grew up in a church, actually, I think... Gets this order wrong. We get it all backwards. And you instinctively think that the worst worldly people out there are those who over-desire the flesh and over-desire the eyes while inside pride continues to breed. My friends, no matter what age you are today, please listen to me close. The worst condition you can be in is not that you say, oh, my goodness, look at all those awful, bad, despicable people out there. That's not the worst people who are out there. The worst condition are the people who say, I am better than them, and I feel better than them. Therefore, I never need to be saved. You know, to be just like the world actually means you feel better than someone else. You feel better than someone else. Why? Because of what? Just fill in the blank. And our apostle Paul John says, this is the worst. Pride of life. Pride of life. Can I just open up here a little bit? Practically speaking, as your pastor, it's category three that keeps me up. It's category three that's really grueling. It's category three that's kind of scary. I really got to pray over it and wrestle over it because more churches get wrecked not by category one or two sins. People got addicted and drunk. Oh, people slept around. Oh, people did this or that. Okay, that's not a good. It's not acceptable. No, 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 no. We got to address that. You need to repent and come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Yes, but oh, you fill a church with category three? People who always want the spotlight, who always want the credit or the attention, self-promoting. People who have to get in the self-elevating, self-proving last word. People who have to be self-protectingly proven right. 
People who are so proud that they're self-deceived that everybody else always does wrong, you can do no wrong. People who can always complain and critique never get the situation right. Don't even bother to ask what the details are, but you can always critique and complain because you never think you're part of the problem. It's everyone else's problem. That's pride. It's pride. And so this leads to sins called gossip and slander and divisiveness and malice and judgment and argumentation and divisions, which I would tell you as your pastor, more than sleeping around, this actually is more damaging to the church. I don't think I'm wrong in this. Apostle James wrote a whole book and says, you know, the, the words of our mouth can do far more damage, like a forest fire. You can take the whole thing down because when you're so prideful, you'll always be so judgmental. Well, how about Jesus Christ himself? Here's what Jesus Christ said in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, you know the tax collectors, like the Bernie Madoffs, the fraudsters, the traitors, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. Do you know who he was talking to? He was talking to people just like me. Chief priests, religious professionals, the scribes, and the people called the Pharisees. You see, people who grew up in the church that think they're better than other people. Based upon what? Just your pride. And Jesus said, you know who's always at the front of line to get into heaven? It's always the people who know they need to be saved. Do you know who's at the back of the line? Or they actually don't even ever get in line. It's the people full of themselves and full of this world. I don't need saving. I don't need grace. Forgive me for what? I'm always right. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. He always usually puts it better than most people. Pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your ingrown toenails cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up very possibility of love or contentment or common sense. Listen, my friends, if you can change and become a better you and a better version of you and become a better husband, a better spouse, a better worker, a better parent, a better brother, a better servant of God, if you can become a better you, if you can change without needing Jesus Christ, listen to me close. If you can change without Christ being central, watch out, world, because your ego is central. Watch out, world. Watch out, church. Because pride will take the throne. This is why only Jesus can change you and not make you insufferable. What is it? What is it? 
Do not love, do not over-desire the flesh, do not over-desire the eyes, and don't be full of yourself with pride. Oh, I'm with you right now. If you feel the weight of this, how do we replace this? How do we get out of this? Well, you can't run and hide from it, even if you become a monk, because you're going to take you wherever you go. You're not going to be able to just stuff it down and repress it because it's going to come back up. You have to replace it. What do you do with the love of the world that is in you and me? John tells us, he suggests it. If you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You see, the reason why you fall in love with the world is because you really don't know love of God as your father. In other words, replace the love of the world with the love of God as father. When my daughters, Taylor and Elizabeth, just flat out disobey mom or me, they just disrespect us. We just enjoyed a spring break, but man, they got their share of meltdowns. It affects us. I'll tell you, it affects Sonny and I way more than when we see your kids disobey you. I'm going to be honest. It makes me laugh when I see them disobey you. It's like I chill and celebrate. I think it's funny. I think they're cute. This is all future. This is training to become a future grandparent who just spoils my grandkids. Why does it affect me so much more that Taylor and Elizabeth disobey their mom and dad. It's because it's more personal. We got much more history with them. Right? We've taken care of them. We've poured out ourselves to them. We've prayed for them. We've loved on them. We've fed them. We've comforted them. We've corrected them. And it's really crucial years now in their teenage years for me as a dad. What really gets me when they flat out disobey is do not Taylor and Elizabeth. Don't they really understand or feel their father's love for them? Like, do they not understand my heart? Like, I would get anything for them that they need. I will do anything for them that they would want. I will provide all things as their dad. But when children don't really understand the love of the father, they're always going to look for love in all the wrong places. When children aren't really sure and they're really not filled with the love of God as your father, you're going to be in love with the world. This is true of the children of God. So how do we replace the love of the world? How do we replace loving this world? How do we not be like the rest of the world? How is that possible? Like you're going to stand out and be so different. How? It's only when a greater love A greater power, a greater beauty, a greater purity of love from out of this world comes rushing in. Look, don't try to stuff it. Don't try to manage it. Don't try to just get rid of it. Don't try to forget it. No, you're going to be in love with the things you love. The only way you're not going to love what you love right now is when a love from out of this world comes rushing in. And you get the love of the Father when you look to and receive Jesus Christ all over again. He 
You see, Jesus Christ never caved in. He never once over-desired. He never, although tempted as we are, he never sinned. He never gave in to the over-desires of the flesh. He never gave in to the over-desires of the eyes of the pride of life. Jesus Christ came without any pomp or circumstance or pride. He was born and raised poor, without position, power, possessions. But Jesus was full of his Father's love. The way that you and I get full of God the Father's love is to receive and need Jesus who is full of his Father's love. And then maybe one of the greatest Christian masterpieces or classics written by J.R. Packer entitled Knowing God. His thesis is, if you really want to understand or see a person who understands Christianity, see how much he or she makes of the thought of God being his or her father and you being his child. J.I. Packer, knowing God, sums up the entirety of Christian life. And then he says, do you want to know the secret to all of Christian life? Do you want to know how to live out the Christian life and become more like Jesus and set free from the love of this world? Quote, say it over and over to yourself, first thing in the morning, last thing at night, anytime your mind is free, and ask that you may be enabled to live as one who knows it as all utterly and completely true. Say what to yourself over and over, morning, day, and night, and anytime your mind is free. What should you say yourself, say to yourself over and over? Here's six practical takeaways. Number one, I'm a child of God. Number two, God is my father. Third, practical replacement. God is my father. Third, heaven is my home. Fourth, every day is one day nearer. Five, my Savior is my brother. Six, every Christian is my brother and sister too. So here it is, my friends. Here it is. If you say and believe worldly things over and over and over and over, if you say and believe worldly things over and over and over and over, which most of us are doing, you will love the world and you'll live just like the world. No one has to teach you to do that. You will live just like the world. But if you replace, if you replace what the world says with the Father's words of love over and over and over and over. J.I. Packer said, this is his secret to all of Christian life. That any time his mind is free, Morning, day, or night, he will take these six practical replacements and say it to himself. And I'll tell you what's going to happen. If you say and believe the Father's love for you, you replace the love of this world with the love of the Father, and you're going to live like you're from out of this world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, and we pray that this word would take action, take root, and it would produce the fruit of replacing the loves of this world with the love of God, my Father. Set us free. Make us more like you. 
And help us to love this world the way you love this world by sending Jesus to die so that he would not condemn it or crush it, but save and recreate it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.